0: This is Graphic Novel TK, your podcast guide to comic book publishing.
1: Hello, I'm Gina Gagliano. And I'm Allison Wilkes. We're very excited today to be talking about professional conduct. When you start working in the comics industry, you, of course, want to be professional, but What does professional behavior actually mean on a day-to-day basis or on an issue-by-issue basis? We're talking today all about that with the amazing Lucy Nisley. Lucy, can you tell us a little about who you are, how you got into comics, like when you first started reading comics and how you got there from where you are today? Sure, I'd love to.
2: So uh, I read comics as a young girl. I grew up with Archie, Calvin and Hobbes, uh, Tintin, that sort of thing. And uh, my mother's an artist, and my father is a literature professor. So they were not super into comics, and the fact that I liked them, my mother thought they were sexist, and the you know it was kind of goofy art. And my father thought they didn't have a lot of literary merit. So from a pretty early age, I had to start reading comics kind of critically in order to defend them to my parents and get them to keep buying them for me. Uh, So I started uh, looking for literary merit and artistic merit and um, and certain feminist messages within the comics that I was reading. And uh, as hard as this was to do in the early 90s, I managed to ferret some things out and I continued to get my parents to buy them for me. I went to art school thinking I would be a painter, but I really loved writing as well. And I started publishing comics in the school newspaper when I was in college as a way to kind of marry my two interests of making art and writing. And I found comics to be this wonderful medium of storytelling and visual storytelling as somebody who grew up reading them. I don't know why it didn't sort of come together until college for me that this was what I wanted to do, but I started. Uh, considering it as a real career and uh, started going to my first comic conventions, making my first zines and uh, managed to self-publish a book that then later got signed by Simon & Schuster and became my first graphic novel, French Milk. I went on from there to make a comic called Relish, My Life in the Kitchen, which is about my experiences growing up with my mother, who was an artist and a chef. And uh, my experiences in the working professional kitchens where she worked. And that led to other comics. I've made a number of travelogues and uh, a number of memoir graphic novels as well.
1: That's great. So let's start off the um professional conduct part of this podcast by talking about some misapprehensions you know i think some people hear the words professional conduct or, or think about being professional and the image that they have is like people at a a fancy soiree wearing <laughs> formality like tuxedos prom dresses monocles yes firm handshakes
2: and stuff right
1: calling people sir and ma'am <laughs> business like, business business yes um but that that is not necessarily what being professional means um, when you're when you're thinking about your career and behaving professionally and being a, a professional person. So what what do you think about when you think about being a professional and having professional behavior?
2: Well, it's a different code of conduct for readers and for editors and um, for bookstore owners, that sort of thing. But in general, I found that the golden rule (laughs) applies in most things that I try to treat everyone how I would want to be treated, which is definitely not the old school professional business conduct of yesteryear. Uh, I'm very informal. I tend to call people by their first names. I have a very close relationship with uh, the people that I work with. And as an autobiographical cartoonist, there are a lot of boundaries that get blurred between my professional persona and the character that I draw as representative of myself in my work. And I've been extremely lucky that it's a line that people uh, tend to respect, but for the most part, it it comes from, uh, setting some pretty clear boundaries between myself and this character. When I read criticism of my work, I'm not reading criticism of myself. Or, um, when I meet someone and they're like, I know the name of your cat. Isn't that weird? I'm like, no, that's not weird. It means you, you closely read my work. I'm not weirded out by that. I'm very flattered. And, um, it's very wonderful. And, (laughs) and that's something that's, so interesting because I I do have to kind of present this public persona that matches what people think of who I am through reading my work.
1: So it sounds like one of the things that you're saying is that being professional and formality are things that get confused. Yeah, I think
2: being professional really means being respectful. (laughs) When I was starting out in the comics industry, I didn't know what I was doing. And one of the things that really helped me learn the professional ins and outs of the publishing world is having an agent. Uh, My agent is wonderful. I've worked with her for over a decade. And I acquired an agent by sending her an email and saying, please help me. I'm 22. And I just got my first book deal. And I don't know how to read the contract. And I don't know what I'm doing. And I don't know anybody's name or what happens and what a book contract is. And she said, I can help you. Let's get together for drinks. And that was my first foray into the, the real business of publishing and she helped me out a lot and uh, gave me an introduction to this world, which is very respectful. It's it's a lot of people who care deeply about their jobs and care deeply about books and getting books into the hands of readers. And you, when you care deeply about things, sometimes uh, it's difficult to present a professional persona I think, but um, but for the most part, I think that it's uh it's something that we we're all learning. It's it's something that we get better at every year, myself included.
0: So it sounds like part of what you're saying is like the idea of professionalism. It's interesting because you're also a memoir cartoonist, so these things you you're kind of having to do this in more than one area, but that idea of like Intentionality, like I'm being thoughtful about who I'm interacting with and my relationship with them, and like the version of myself that I'm presenting. And you're not just kind of saying everything that comes into your head the minute you think it.
2: Definitely not. It's all it's all got to be edited. (laughs) Everything you say has to be edited before you say it to your editor. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I mean I started out young and I didn't know my way around. And the best thing that I could do was kind of ask, like, who who do I go to with this? And I'm still learning the ropes after a decade of doing this, it's still like, okay, do I talk to my editor? Do I talk to the marketing team? Do I talk to my agent? Like, who do I talk to? And the benefits of having an agent is that I can ask her and just say, are you the person that I talk to here or who should I contact? Like what should I say? And um, it's really, really helpful to have somebody who knows the business who can give you a few tips on how to create this sort of public interaction
0: and, you know, I'm so glad that you're putting it that way, too, because I, I know that a thing that a lot of especially younger cartoonists really worried about is that if they ask too many questions, it's going to make them look like they're stupid or they don't know what they're doing. And so they'll kind of avoid asking anything, weirdly, because they're worried about not looking professional. Whereas it seems like part of what you're saying is the way that you learn how to be a working cartoonist is to ask as many questions as possible at every opportunity by people who can help you out. Definitely. But possibly like very politely. Yes,
2: very politely. (laughs) Yes, very politely (laughs) ask. And, you know, you want to put in your research and do the work and try and find out as best you can. But if you have somebody in your corner, asking is the best way. And when I was starting out, I had a lot of older cartoonists who Uh, took me under their wing and helped me out and who I met through the internet or at comic conventions. And a lot of what I learned was just through listening to what they had to say. And they would frequently go into their whole spiel about like, oh, you know, I heard that so-and-so got this bad contract and it was really uh, rough at this one publisher and, you know, picking up these things where it's like, oh, okay, I, I see that there are bad contracts and like, how then do you not get a bad contract? Like, what did you do? And people are usually very happy to discuss these things because we all were once starting out and we're all so happy that we know anything about this. I think like, I'm always happy to say, oh yeah, you know, like get an agent, please, you know, get some protection for yourself. And, um, that's, that's something that I, I'm happy to share with younger cartoonist, because I didn't know and I learned from older cartoonists.
1: It sounds like for what you're saying, the way that you are professional with your agent is different from the way that you're professional with your your editor, the people you work with in marketing, um, and the people that you interact with on the internet, or when you go to shows. Um, is that is that right? Like, do you kind of think about professionalism differently in those situations?
2: I think so. Yeah. I, I consider my agent a very good friend, but also she's uh, she makes money when I do. So she doesn't want me to ruin any professional interactions or relationships. So I, I trust her in what she says. And it's good to have sort of a first line of defense to the professional world who you really trust, because otherwise it can feel kind of like you're up against a big faceless corporation. and it'll take some time to build up these professional relationships before it feels comfortable enough that you, you feel confident in these interactions. And I think building up one close relationship with somebody who you trust is really important to get you started in that.
1: Personally, knowing your editor, I think you know, she's probably some someone you would also consider a friend as, yes. as well. <laughs>
2: yes, definitely. <laughs> um, my editor is an excellent friend and that's another relationship that, uh, I've had for over a decade and it's, uh, it's a wonderful, very trusting relationship. And when we both started out, I was, I mean, when I started out, I should say she had been doing it for a while, but, uh, when I started out, uh, it was hard for me to gauge, uh how an editor interacts with me as a cartoonist and you know not ev- every editor is going to do the same thing and it took a while for me to realize that we were compatible but it was not the case with my earlier editor who I loved but she was working with uh, Simon & Schuster which was a bigger company and it was their first time publishing comics and it wasn't as great an interaction so I didn't realize at the time that like Oh, it's it's not always very simple and easy and trusting between uh, myself and the business world (laughs) Um, until I suddenly it was suddenly it was great. It was I had this great editor. I had a great agent. I had a great publicist. And I was able to sort of say, "Okay, I'm comfortable here with what I'm doing and how I'm interacting with these people for the most part. And there were some bumps along the way. Certainly, uh, there always are in professional relationships when you're ironing things out. But uh, but it's not always going to be the case. Like sometimes there'll be a personality clash at a publisher, or they'll, uh, they'll want something from you that you can't provide. And then it's really hard to stay professional.
0: And it sounds like you're also kind of having normal coworker problems in a way where it's like you're going to have a lot of people that you're working with, and some of them are going to be very easy and casual and chill with you. And some of them are doing their job, but it's going to be a little more complicated. But that doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem. It just means that maybe that's not your favorite person to work with going forward.
2: Exactly. I, I definitely agree with that. And I will say that cartoonists tend to like work alone in their houses all the time myself included, and it can make you a little awkward. You don't have the everyday interactions with your coworkers where you're like, hey, you know, just see the Game of Thrones episode last night. You don't have these to kind of hone your interpersonal professional relationship skills. So it's it can be hard when you're uh, someone, an artist who works from home, to suddenly have these skills at the ready where you're like, okay, now I got to Uh, I got to be thinking about how I present myself and how I interact with these people. And I don't want to say something to mess my career up. And, uh, (laughs) and that's really tough. So that's another yet another reason why I really like having a a close circle of trusted colleagues.
0: So I mean, I know that you had at least a couple of jobs when you were younger, like job jobs that weren't sitting at home drawing comics. Like <laughs> working at a cheesemonger. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Having, yes, having read Relish. Uh, <laughs> so did you do you feel like having had those jobs made some of these professional relationships easier for you to navigate in terms of like understanding working relationships or did it end up just being so different that it didn't really apply?
2: Well, there's basically no greater drama than in a, <laughs> a kitchen or in the food service industry. So... There was a lot of navigating that to get out of my system. And I think that that really helped later on when I was like, oh, okay, if there's drama, I know how to handle it. And I would prefer to not have that in my professional career. So that was very helpful. I did work in the food industry. I worked as a waitress and I worked as a cheesemonger for a while. And I think it's important for every human soul on the face of the planet to work in the service industry at some point, just because it gives you an appreciation for serving your fellow man and, uh, the respectful professional relationship that you have with your customers. And it later on will go on to help you interact with everyone. So I certainly do think that that helps. And it also helped my relationship with my art. Frankly, I know that's a little bit of a sidebar to the professionalism conversation, but I think that, uh, That having a job that I was working in order to support my art gave me a really good perspective on the importance of my work, of uh, being an artist and my dedication to it. That I was willing to, you know, wait tables in order to be able to afford to go home and make comics all night long.
0: I mean, I think that's, it's part of being a working cartoonist. So I, I think it's extremely relevant, honestly.
1: So like when you, when you kind of started out and you're like developing those relationships with, uh, you know, your editor, your agent, like, did you kind of like sit down and think about like rules for yourself? Like, <laughs> you know, like this podcast is a swearing podcast, but my email with my editor is not a a <laughs> space where I should be be swearing. What's the emoticon
0: policy for my agent emails?
1: (laughs) Uh, Do I talk about my, my family with my agent? Or is that a space where I like just talk about business or, you know, like any sort of kind of like mental rubrics that you use to separate the personal and the professional?
2: (laughs) At first, definitely not. I totally went into it like a lamb to slaughter. I was just like, let's see what these people say to me. (laughs) Um, And I didn't know what to do. And the thing is also is that my work is personal. It's personal work. So these conversations are very nebulous. They get very personal. And the purpose of my work is to make something that people identify with and that they feel connected to. So I would hate to have a professional conversation where people were like, I don't get what you're all about. I don't get your life and I don't want to talk about it. Uh, let's just talk about the work. And it's like, well, we can't talk about the work unless we talk about like my cat. So I I don't know what to (laughs) tell you. Um, and that, that really worked out for me because my editor and I talk about our cats for like at least 15 minutes before the, every conversation we've ever had. And, (laughs) and that really works for us. But, um, we also have to like watch the time and like make sure that we get to the, the actual professional discussion.
0: (laughs) And we've been talking a lot about like your agent and your editor and other people who are kind of uh, on like the back end. But also also you mentioned, you know, having relationships with other cartoonists, which I mean, a lot of us as cartoonists, like we like to be friends with other cartoonists and you go to a lot of conventions. And for some of my friends, certainly like you get to the point where 90% of your friend group is other cartoonists (laughs) and then a handful of people you knew in high school. And it's (laughs) but I mean, it, it ends up causing interesting problems where your coworkers or your colleagues are also your social group. And is that Mm. something that you've like spent some time like thinking about how to navigate or do you just kind of feel your way through it?
2: In part, um, I will say that I was very lucky and had a lot of foresight early on to uh, partner up with somebody who was not a cartoonist. Uh, So my, my husband is not a cartoonist and I I get to interact with non cartoonists all the time. It's great. (laughs) they are people too, but, um, (laughs) but at conventions you can get kind of, overloaded and i went to graduate school for comics so it was in the woods (laughs) only comic artists and it's really insular and you get circular in your head and it's hard to separate out personal relationships and professional ones and uh i i find that cultivating relationships outside the comics community has really helped me with this but um but i will say that there are you know, you like any interaction with someone, you have to suss out, you know, what someone's motivations are and you know, what your relationship with them entails. And for me, I was really lucky. I came of age in the age of live journal, uh, where there were a lot of active cartoonists that had live journals and it was the early days of blogging. So nobody was really censoring themselves all that well. And, um, I learned so much from interacting with people online And these are people that I'm still friends and colleagues with to this day, but we all live scattered across the country, which is probably kind of helpful, frankly, because we don't see each other all the time, constantly and get kind of get into all each other's business. But we're still we're still on like a secret Twitter group and we still talk about business together. And it's wonderful. It's uh, a group of women that I really, really respect whose careers I really admire. And it's, it's been so wonderful that we started out together, and we sort of were able to learn from each other, and, uh, and have this long professional relationship that's also friendly. But it's, it's something that you you do have to draw boundaries. in. you know, you can't you can't just do every single friend of yours anthology. You can't kickstart and back every single friend's Kickstarter project, and it's it can be tricky. It can be tricky to navigate these things, um, especially in the age of Patreon, where it's like you're my patron, but I'm not yours, and uh, and it you know it's it gets a little tense. But one of the wonderful things that I've learned from this group of professional friends that I have is is this conduct of behavior of mutual respect and uh it's taken me a long time to learn not to gossip and not to indulge in gossip around uh comic convention and uh comic convention behaviors and that's something that is really really an excellent tip you you don't want to fall into the the drama zone of comic conventions
1: So let's talk a little more about about conventions and public events and professional behavior at that. What do you recommend when people are kind of like, you know, first going out and meeting readers or talking about their books to people who are going to become their readers? Or meeting other cartoonists. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like everything from like clothes to behavior, like is that all stuff that they should be thinking about? Should they be <laughs> thinking about what to say in advance if they're on programs? Like how, how should people be kind of thinking about these these public experiences?
2: Sure. I, I would say that the best thing you could do if you're planning to go to a convention is to cultivate a relationship uh, online, a friendship with um, someone else who's going, who's a similar... Uh, makes similar work to yours, or perhaps is a little bit more established, but has a career similar to what you want in life. And you can reach out through an email, you can uh, reach out through a comment, that sort of thing. Or you can just go up to the table and offer them a copy of your mini comic, that sort of thing, and say, I'm a big admirer of your work. Uh, it would really mean a lot to me if you look this over. And that's just a foot in the door. There are people that I am very good friends with now in the comics industry who started out just like that. I had a friend, uh, who came up to me at MoCA. We didn't know each other. And he said, hi, I'm just starting out. I want to be a comic artist. Here's my zine. Um, I think we should be friends. And I was like, okay, that's cool. And then the next day he came up and he was like, actually tomorrow I'm going to the, the Harry Potter museum here in town. Do you want to come? And I was like, yeah, that sounds really fun. So, (laughs) So now he's, uh, he's an established comic artist, and it's great, but it's also one of these things that you don't ex- always expect. You never know who you're going to meet at one of these comic conventions. So it's generally a great blanket rule to just be really nice to as many people as you can. If you can't be nice, be respectful. Uh, if you want to sell your work and engage people behind the table, you want to stand up and make eye contact. I know that that's hard for a lot of people and your legs get really tired, but that's the way to do it on a convention. You want to uh, thank the convention organizers if you can, and you want to thank the artists that you admire. And this is all just a community of respect. So it's it's a matter of doing the things that you would think would be nice if somebody were to do them to you. And that's, that's the best advice I can give give you for going to a comic convention
0: so now now i'm just curious because i've actually experienced such a wide range of of this i'm now collecting people's answers for this on the scale of i literally just get up in the morning and pull something out of my suitcase to I have planned three months in advance every single outfit that I'm wearing on each individual clothes, day at okay. this convention. <laughs> Lucy's book clothes are very exciting.
1: <laughs> I'm so impressed with your book clothes every, every time you do a new book.
2: <laughs> I didn't get to for my last book, though, because uh, it was a book about weddings and I was nine months pregnant and I did not. I really wanted to do events in my wedding dress for this book. I thought that would be really funny. But um, I was nine months pregnant and like four of those dresses wouldn't have gone on me. But, um, but yes, the when Relish came out, I had a dress made of the pattern on the back of the book and I wore that to events and comic conventions and it was a grand old thing. So that was really wow. fun. Uh, for, for conventions, it does tend to change if I'm going to be on a panel or not. And it varies from convention to convention. Cake here in Chicago, which is a great show. Um, I really love it. And so my, you know, my local indie show. So I go every year. But it's like every person there is 22 years old. They're all so young. And and I'm like this mom and I work from home. So I'm like most of the time I'm just in like jeans and a t shirt. So I was like, I'm dressing up for this. This is gonna be great. And I pulled out all my coolest clothes for the show. And Um, and, and it was really fun. I got to wear like some of my favorite outfits, but, but it's so funny at shows like this that are so full of fashionable young people. I just feel like it's like, you know, what are we looking at the books or the people, uh, people's hair is fabulous. And like, it's all great. But um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's kind of new, I think and people always got dressed up to a certain extent, but I remember conventions that I did back in the day where I would just wear like a flannel shirt and, and that was fine. And like, I look at pictures and I'm like, but, but now it's like people, people get dressed up for the Instagram and it's like, they look great and it's kind of fun because I work from home. I don't get to dress up all that often. So I, I've started kind of planning a little bit more planning what I'm going to wear and what I'm going to do and that sort of thing.
0: The FIT kids at MOGA have gotten completely out of control. Oh, I'm sure. Oh my God. Like they, they roam in packs and it's like insane. I'm like, who are these alien, beautiful people? <laughs> of course. It's amazing. My dad is
2: the uh, Dean of Liberal Arts at FIT. So I go there and I go visit him and I'm always like, look at these beautiful flamingo people. I love them. <laughs>
1: Um, so, you know, you clearly think about what you're going to do, how you're going to behave, what you're kind of going to go into things, thinking about when you're doing events in public. But what about the internet? Is that something that you kind of approach with that same sort of deliberation and and
0: planning? Now that we're not on live journal anymore,
2: yeah, right. Um, I try to. Back in the live journal day, I certainly uh, didn't hold back. So, um, you know, I think with age and time and with like the, the parts of my brain fully setting, I think that now I'm, uh, I'm much more aware of it for sure. Uh, I do want to talk about one aspect of conventions though, that I, oh, find, okay. All right. One more thing about conventions that I, <laughs> that I find really difficult, uh, to be professional about is people's names. And this is something that Everybody experiences at conventions. There's nobody I know who's like, I remember everybody I meet at a convention. I'm definitely not overwhelmed and like totally in this zone of like trying to sell myself and be available. But also like I'm meeting 600 people today and like I I remember everybody. There's nobody at a convention that's like, this is totally easy for me. Um, and that was a real revelation for me because I was like, I'm bad at conventions. I don't remember people's names. I don't recognize their faces. I'm bad. I'm a bad professional and I should not have a job and I should, (laughs) I should just go into my house and never see anyone ever. It's not true. And (laughs) this is why we have name tags at conventions, do a social service and make sure your name tag is visible face out. And when you meet people that you met, Two years ago at a convention for 15 minutes, even if you met them, you know, and you had a deep in-depth conversation, reintroduce yourself, please. It goes such a long way and makes people so grateful to you that you will instantly make a friend at a convention. If you're like, hi, I'm so-and-so, we met at MoCA three years ago. Um, I, had, <laughs> I had a book about XYZ and um, you said that it was great or, you know, like anything like that.
1: Yeah. And I also think that there, it is very reasonable to ask people to remind you of their names if they don't, like, if you're like, you know, I know we met before, Uh, just remind me of your name, you know, or like, I feel like the, the standard excuse is something like, I have convention brain, like, yeah. You know, remind me what your name is.
0: Which is a real thing. I have very good friends whose names have flown out oh, of yeah. my head. Like, friends I see multiple times a month where I'm <laughs> staring at them being like, Who I are know you? that your name begins with an R. <laughs> oh, I know. It's the, and then you're, like, introducing them, and you're like, um, this is, um, um, um,
2: um, and it's horrible. And yeah. so, yeah, it's totally acceptable to to reintroduce yourself or ask someone to reintroduce themselves. And I... I it, it gave me so much anxiety about conventions early on and and i just it my heart breaks for like to think about everyone going through the same thing it really helped me to know that everybody goes through it and everybody experiences this anxiety and that there are you know there are people with actual face blindness going to these comic conventions so you know at least
1: at least you might be better off than that you know you might, yeah. you might be okay And, you know, you can always claim to have face blindness if people look very, very offended or problematic.
0: Be like, I'm sorry, just so bad at faces. Yeah. And I'm glad that you're saying this, actually, because every once in a while, somebody will get really offended. And I feel like it's important to be like, people have the right to be offended by what they're offended about, but they are in the minority. And don't let one person's bad reaction keep you from asking people. Like, you're not being rude. That person is overreacting to feeling forgotten. It's And I understand that feeling of being offended that somebody doesn't remember that you met them at a brunch two years ago, but like, that's not your problem. You are not being a jerk by asking them. Because I feel like people get one bad reaction, like, oh, no, I shouldn't do this. And then they stop asking. It's like, no, no, that person was just in a bad mood. (laughs) Yeah. And like, how much more
1: problematic is it to not ask a person what their name is or to reintroduce themselves and then find out a year later that they are an agent who talked to you a year ago and was hoping to come and back come back and see if you have representation but since you're like oh yeah good to see you uh I have to I have to run to the bathroom like but I'm sure we'll catch up in the future and then you're like yeah, I wish I I wish I had an agent. I'm like looking up agents and I'm like, "Oh yeah, that's that woman who came and tried to talk to me. Like maybe I should have uh, asked her to remind me what her name was." Yeah. We have a tribal
2: memory. Nobody has the capacity to remember 600 faces and then
0: not see them for a year. So now I think Gina desperately wants to hear about your opinions about how to not make an ass of yourself on social media. <laughs>
1: Yes, I do.
2: Um, In theory. (laughs) I would love to hear someone else's. I mean, I I try and do my best here. And this is somebody who's a pretty, uh, like, unoffensive Instagram stream of my baby. Is like, not really, like, it's not everybody's cup of tea. But uh, it's not going to ruffle a lot of feathers, I will say. But um, I'm I'm cautious. (laughs) And I try to only uh, put good and honest things into the world. So I've been lucky enough to be uh, a witness to what's happened to social media and like how it's become this huge force of nature and to be respectful of it because I I came of age in this and I had my moments early on of like viral fame that uh, taught me that that's, oh, that's not what I aspire to do. (laughs) That's not what I want. I don't want to be known for my like crazy internet presence. Um, in a particularly vivid uh, occurrence of this, I made a video for my then boyfriend using puppets where I I, like wrote a little song and, and uh, like did a puppet show and it was on YouTube and it was featured on the main page of YouTube when I was like, Oh God, how old was I? I was like 20 years old. Um, So this was 13 years ago and YouTube was a total wild West with no kind of comment editing. And it was, like the worst cesspool of people commented on these videos. And I was 20 years old and I was like, wow, these people hate me and they wish me to die. So I think kind of early exposure to that was uh, very much a learning experience where I was like, okay, social media and um it's strangers online are, uh, scary. (laughs) And, um, I I don't want to put this kind of negativity and violence and malice into the world. And so the things that I want to put online, I'm going to be careful to try and encourage only positive reactions. And, um, you know, it certainly won't be everybody's taste, but, uh, it's not going to be forced upon them. And if they don't like it, they can unfollow or unsubscribe Um, I'm generally not very good at things like Twitter. Like I can't read it for very long without getting, um, sad. So, so I don't, uh, I don't lend my voice to the discourse all that often on, on Twitter, which, uh, is the healthy choice that I've made for myself. It's not the right thing for everybody, but what I generally try to stick to is, uh, you know, promoting my appearances, promoting my books when they come out or, uh, posting a comic, Here and there, when I think it's particularly good, (laughs) or it might uh, appeal to a broader group of people, I I just I feel that the uh, that the best advice I can give somebody about social media is that if you are in doubt, sleep on it. (laughs) Uh, Same with emails that you are treating in a professional way, an email to an editor or an agent or a designer or a publicist or a tweet or an Instagram post, anything like that. If you are angry. Or if you are sad, or if you are particularly furious, <laughs> um, just sleep on it before you post it. Just ha- like take a moment to feel like I'm a little doubtful about this, and sleep on it. And then in the morning, you can do it with a clear head. And I found that that's really helpful for me when I get really upset or angry, and I want to like send an angry email. I just sleep on it. And then in the morning, I'm like, Oh, okay, I, <laughs> I feel a little bit more calm about this. And I feel like I can share this, uh, either, you know, do a little editing and share it or um, maybe this can, maybe this can wait.
0: <laughs> so it sounds like part of what you're saying also is that like, it's very personal. I think some people get this idea in their heads that there's like a correct way to be using Twitter or Instagram or whatever, and therefore they need to figure out the most correct thing and then do it. Whereas it sounds like part of what you're saying is what's correct for somebody else isn't necessarily going to be correct for you. Like, maybe I really, I'm not even going to pretend this is me. Maybe a person really is going to do very well getting into very complicated political conversations on Mm -hmm. Twitter and that Is a situation they really thrive in and that's going to introduce them to people they really want to connect with. And maybe you just want to post pictures that you've drawn of your cat and neither one of those is wrong. Right. You maybe one person doesn't want to be the other person.
2: Yeah. And don't get offended when people unfollow you or aren't interested in what you're putting out there. Like try to put out something that you're positive about and that you feel good about. And then you know, don't feel bad when somebody else doesn't react the same way or the way that you want them to.
1: So Allie's example of this, you know, person engaging in political situations versus the person with cat drawings, (laughs) um, you know, kind of brings to mind like you, you have like, specifically curated your presence, like you, you're like, you know, putting stuff out there on social media, but it's a it's a very specific kind of post. Um, is that something that you recommend that people think about? Like if they're like, I want to be reaching these kinds of people, I want to be reaching readers, like, should I be, you know, swearing and talking a lot about politics (laughs) when I am trying to reach 12 year olds? Or should I be posting like, cat art or, you know, uh, comics about my baby or anything like that?
2: Well, I will say that if you feel very strongly that you do want to be swearing and posting angry things about politics online, that's great. But you might want to tailor your work to that. Because if you're going to have a professional online presence, you want that online presence to serve you and to aid you in your end goal so if you want to have a separate twitter account to go on like rants or get into fights or you know swear that's great i have a separate twitter account that i use to talk to my other professional comics friends and we like you know trade our insights about the comics world and i post on there much more often than i would post on regular twitter because i know that that, that this serves my end goal of like having friends and having a job <laughs> Um, and I post, you know, pictures of my baby that I wouldn't necessarily share with the world because they're my friends and they've known me for 10 years. And I'm like, here you go. So, (laughs) so I will say that like, there are ways to have both. You can have, you can do what you want and have a internet presence that is totally separate from your professional presence. You just have to keep them very separate. And for me, I do have some aspects of, uh, political discourse, involved in my work. I feel very strongly about women's medicine. It's something that I write about and I talk about in my comics. I nearly died in childbirth. And so this is something that I cover in a lot of my work. So I feel that some aspects of my political leanings and my beliefs creep into my online presence just because it's something that I feel strongly enough that it is present in my work. And I think that what when the trouble arises is when people have work that they uh, that they treat totally separate from their um, online persona and that's when things get really sticky because you will have people who are like children's authors who don't have an online presence that is reflective of that and I think that that's maybe a mistake, but, uh, you know, you do you, (laughs) I think that that's fine for me. Uh, I've kept it pruned, let me say. (laughs) Um, whereas like my, my personal political beliefs might be more extreme than are reflective online, uh, even in the things that I do discuss, which are women's health and, and the history of women's health. But that's, that's my readership. That's who I'm reaching out to. And I want to put that into the world and I want to make that known.
0: So it sounds like you're also saying that like a thing is to sort of sit down and really think like, what do I want to get out of this? Like, am I using this Twitter account to meet people socially or am I using this Twitter account to like promote my work as an author and maybe those two Twitter accounts are not going to look the same?
2: Yeah. And I think this is how I think of Twitter and I know that people think about it in lots of different ways. We already talked about that. But for me, my Twitter account is my name, which is my professional name. And that's in this day and age, it's just indiscernible from how people see my books, how people see my website. Oh, she has a Twitter. That's an extension of all of my professional persona. And so if I had a Twitter name that was not my name, perhaps then I would feel more free to have a very separate personal persona online. But I don't, I don't have that. I'm very, very lucky that in my career, I've been able to share a great deal of my life and my thoughts and my beliefs in my work. And um, and that extends to my professional work in general, which extends to my online persona. Um, and I think that there's lots of people that are frustrated because their work and their online persona don't intersect. And uh, I think that that can get really aggravating. And I get it, I get it. You write a unicorn princess novel And then you have a Twitter account and you want, you get like really mad about something that you read in the news and you want to share it with your readership and your, you know, the world. But I, I just, I would just sleep on it. You know, I just sleep on it. It's fine. (laughs) It's totally fine. But just sleep on it and think about it and like, you know, calm down a
0: little bit before you decide to share it. Especially if you're specifically Encouraging your unicorn princess 12 year old fans to follow that Twitter.
1: Right. Yeah. 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 So one of the things that I am kind of hearing here is that, you know, there, there is uh, like an element of the, the personal that comes out in your public professional presence basically, no matter what you do, you know, because you especially with doing autobio work with specifically talking about, you know, like food advocacy with talking about, you know, challenging the ideas and the status quo about weddings in the US, you know, talking about women's medicine and childbirth, like you're, you're directly, uh, like connecting your personal life and your professional life. But even other cartoonists who are not doing autobio who are writing fiction can feel like there's, there's themes in their work that are very personal to them that they, they write about, um, you know, all sorts of different kind of, like, social challenges and, mm-hmm. uh, like, all of that. Like, what, what would you say to someone who is anxious about kind of navigating that, you know, like, even if I write The Boxcar Children – you know my personal identity about orphans is is coming out in this book, and that is now going to be part of my professional identity
2: yeah I, I mean all I can say is good luck. the internet is a beast man <laughs> i I think everybody really struggles with uh finding that balance um I know that I do when I first had a baby and I was making a lot of comics about women's health, and I felt so vulnerable as this person that had almost died in childbirth. And I had this newborn baby that I felt really vulnerable about. And I was like, do I even want to like have an online persona and make myself more vulnerable in this way? And, you know, I thought about it and I, I was getting responses to my online persona from all of these other women who had been through this and all of these other men who had become new parents and felt so raw and vulnerable. And they were responding not only to my comics, but to my online presence, to my honesty online. And it was wonderful. And I was like, you know what, I'm putting something out there on the internet that is causing positivity. And that's great. That's what I want. I want people to feel good things and have a positive reaction to the things that I'm putting out there And I also was able to, to share these things that I felt really uh, strong and raw about. And I think that that's great. I I was really lucky, but I will say that I did get the occasional troll and I still do. Um, And it's, it's funny to me when I get like a really vicious, violent, scary, awful troll, because I'm like, I'm posting like a picture of my kid. It's so cute. I'm like so unoffensive, but you know, people just, they, they find any reason to hate you. And it's, it's always going to happen. You could be the most beloved, most ubiquitous, wonderful person, and you'll get plenty of people that hate you and hate the things that you make and the things that you put out there. And you just you can't feed them. You got to ignore them. You got to think about the positivity. I know we all have negativity bias, and you know we could get 100,000 people saying, you're great, and one person saying, I hope you die in a fire, and we're like, oh, I should die in a fire. But <laughs> that is not the case. It's ridiculous. And I had this great experience actually this year where I had this really vicious troll on Instagram right after my son was born who uh, took offense to the fact that I was a feminist, which at this point is like it's not even an outrageous statement to say I'm a feminist. It's not it shouldn't be political and it shouldn't be outrageous. But there are some people that still think that. And I I like mentioned it offhand in one of my comics and he took it upon himself to like make 50 Instagram accounts to harass me with. And he was just commenting the most horrible things on like pictures of my baby. And, uh, and I just remember I was going through so much. I had postpartum anxiety and this was just making me like, so horrified every time I would get one of these comments from this person. And, um, and I was like, all right, I just, I have to just ignore it. I have to just ignore it and it'll go away. And that is just how I'm going to handle this. And like a year later, this person wrote me an email and was like, hi, I, you know, I just want to say I was the person doing this and I uh, I was going through a really weird time and I was having a lot of emotions and I'm really sorry that I did that to you. I really apologize. And I was like, floored. this never happens. I don't want to set people up for the expectation that this will happen. (laughs) This has never happened in all of my years of doing this when I've had plenty of trolls. And usually they just lose interest. um, Never, ever before have I ever had somebody write me and say, like, I'm really sorry for doing this. Uh, It was amazing. And it was so validating to know, like, oh, that's
1: what I thought. And it's exactly what happened. And um, great. It's really cool. All right. (laughs) So changing subjects a little when you are in a situation, possibly not like this troll, but like, you know, on some level of this troll where you're like, I just did something, and that was actually inappropriate. Or mm-hmm. that was not as professional as I would like. Um, hopefully, listeners, you are not going out making fifty Instagram accounts to harass Lucy
0: Nisley. We do not Please recommend don't. that. It's definitely not professional. But maybe you didn't sleep on an email and you sent an email to your editor when you were really mad and drunk. Right. Yes. Which or happens. you,
1: you know, thought you were texting and it was a tweet instead, and now the whole internet saw this thing. Um, or you, you know, misinterpreted something. Mm. On, online at a panel at in an email and you went off on a whole rant and it turns out the person was emailing you to check in on how your deadline was or you know something. any number of things yeah
2: yeah yes. we all we all have bad reactions to things when we're hungry or tired or you know anything our child is yeah. turning two and are slowly morphing into a toddler but um i i will say that uh in most situations a uh, honest to the point, heartfelt apology is always the right place to start. Uh, in any case, via email or publicly, uh, that's always a good thing to do. Um, right now, you know, people can access opinions very easily and um, find a lot to be upset about in those opinions. And it's it's really really tough when you misstep. And I I think we're all learning to navigate this now in this new culture of online. Opinion having and sharing, and you know, I I would say that a heartfelt apology is always the way to go. I myself have been in plenty of these situations where I've misstepped either at a convention or um, via email professionally, and you know, people can hold it against you forever. And just like that troll, you just sort of have to let it slide. You have to say, okay, well, I you know, I did what I could. And I, you know, I apologize, I regretted my actions publicly. And um, if they want to hate me, they can hate me. That's just how it has to be, I guess. And I think that that comes easier with practice um, as you get older and experience it over and over again. (laughs) I will say that, you know, it's always going to sting, but it's one of those things that you got to learn to take. You got to grow the skin, you got to learn to take a hit, you got to learn to uh, take a critique. Uh, And it all comes part and parcel with being an artist. You know, you're always going to have people that will criticize your work or criticize you. um, And that makes you better. That's going to make you better in the long run. And hopefully if you can learn from it, you can come out stronger on the other end.
0: So if, for instance, also like specifically for like kind of professional stuff, like, oh, no, like, I think I've accidentally caused a weird misunderstanding of my editor or I misunderstood this thing and I... Didn't show up for this convention I said I was going to show up to, like, and you're just completely panicked. Like, do you do you feel like that's a if somebody has an agent or some other kind of professional relationship like that, but somebody's helping them? Is that like, can you ask that your agent or something for advice about that? Like, is that something you'd recommend people do?
2: Oh, definitely ask your agent, ask your colleagues about it. Most people, I assure you, will have been there. I myself was like an hour and a half late to this interview. I'm so sorry again. <laughs> um, <laughs> I started out with a apology and um, you were very kind enough to let me continue and didn't just say, uh, no, we're not interested in talking to you about professionalism anymore. <laughs> um, very much appreciated. Thank you. <laughs>
1: um, and I feel like one of the the interesting things to say about this is that Uh, like, professionalism is a thing that gets easier with practice. And as you work with people longer, like, you know, Lucy, you're talking about your, your editor and your agent who you've known for years, who you're now like, yeah, like, I've, I've kind of sussed out that, like, I can say this sort of thing to them. But like, unprofessional mishaps, like, they don't go away. Like, I, Mm -hmm. I feel like I frequently have to apologize to people for misreading something or being late to something or not getting back as soon as I should have. Or- oh, definitely.
2: They don't go away. They do get easier.
0: <laughs> yeah. I literally, a couple of weeks ago, I finally had the moment where I realized that I had to have the internet send me an email literally every day. That's just a bunch of explosion <laughs> emojis. And the entire email is, go read your calendar for the day right (laughs) now because I literally was convinced that I had a meeting on Monday that was on Friday and just didn't show up to it. And so I'm getting these text messages like, hey, Allison, like, are you like, are you stuck on the train? And I'm like, no, I'm in Brooklyn. Uh, I guess I'm not going to be at that meeting. I'm very sorry. Uh, And I mean, it, it was fine. And there were people that I knew and I apologized profusely and showed up very early for, The meeting when it got rescheduled, but it's like, you know, everybody messes these things up. And all you can do is sort of have that moment of like, not everybody hates me, right? My career isn't over. (laughs) What can I learn from this situation? How can I keep this from happening again? And I'm 37. And I have to have a computer tell me to look at my calendar. (laughs) Because just having the computer have the calendar wasn't enough. I have to have an email that tells me to look at it.
1: Maybe bring pastry to the rescheduled meeting. <laughs> um, but I do feel like you know it. It does get easier to like figure out the professional thing to do in the situation once you have been
0: professional. For a a period of time. Yeah, I still fuck up, but I think I'm better at fixing it than I used to be.
2: Right. And you learn from the fuck ups. And then, like, you know, you're not late again the the (laughs) following day. You know, you try and
0: space them out a little bit. (laughs) I keep inventing new ways to mess up. Right. You know, I won't do that exact same thing again as well that's why we have new and
1: exciting challenges yeah they allow for experience in in creativity and growth and also professionalism
0: yeah so is there anything like that you feel like we didn't touch on that you like advice you want to give to younger cartoonists who are just kind of starting out and feeling really intimidated by how to present themselves in the world
2: it's always tough for me to uh, give advice to younger cartoonists because when I was starting out, I was so lucky to in terms of timing and in terms of who I was starting out with. Um, but I will say that the greatest piece of advice that I ever got was from Linda Barry. And I tell this story all the time. So apologies if you've already heard it. But um, I was in grad school and I was uh, totally overexposed to comics. Basically, I, all I did was talk to other comic artists. All I did was talk about comics. All I did was make comics. All I did was read comics. It was just, it was too much. <laughs> I love comics. This is something I've devoted my life to, but it was too much. And I was burning out. And I, I just, I didn't know if I wanted to do this anymore. I didn't know if I wanted to make comic culture the culture of my profession. Because it was awkward and weird. And it was just, oh, I didn't. Uh, and I was freaking out. I was in my first year of grad school, and I had just signed like my first book publishing contract, and I didn't know if this was what I wanted to do anymore, and Linda Berry came to my school, and she gave a talk about creativity, and um, it was wonderful and eye-opening. If you ever get the opportunity to interact with Linda Berry in any way, please do it. It's wonderful, and it will change your life. So uh, I had this wonderful experience in her workshop, and then the day after her workshop, I got up super early because I was like all jazzed up from it. And I went to the bagel store and I wanted to go get a bagel. And Linda Berry was standing in front of me in line at the bagel store. And she, she was wearing this beautiful Yay. fringe jacket that she like She looked so fabulous. And, um and I, I was like, Oh God, do I say something? Do I not say something? Like, what do I do? Is it not professional to say something? And I ended up just tapping her on the shoulder and saying, uh, Linda, I really loved your workshop. I was in it yesterday. It was so wonderful. And I, um, I just so appreciate what you did. And, you know, frankly, I want to be a cartoonist, but I don't know if this is the culture that I want to be in. And I, you know, I don't know if this is what I want to do with my life. And I, I don't know if, uh, you know, I, I want to make comics, but the, I don't know if this is the job for me, because I because the professional thing was so hard for me at first navigating that was so hard. And uh, I was having such a tough time with it, with going to conventions and not remembering people's names and um, the competition of other comic artists. And it was all just getting me down. And this all kind of poured out on this woman. Talk about professionalism. I was just like, Buh! and I'm crying and just like telling her my whole life story. And Linda Berry said, You know, when you're an artist, you're it's your it's like your art is your little baby and you have this baby and it's innocent and pure and it's this reflection of yourself and you love it and you care for it. And everybody just jumps on top of the baby and says, ride me to the bank, baby, Um, which is ludicrous to think about. A baby's not going to take you anywhere. Um, But if you do things to to support the baby if you grow the baby and give it time to develop and give it space and give it nurturing and um you know maybe you'll have to work another job to support the baby that sort of thing um if you treat it as your baby your baby will grow up big and strong and then you can ride it to the bank and then it can be the thing that is like you know the big job in your life but until then you have to treat it as a baby and i was just it was like exactly what needed to be said to me at exactly the right time and it I appreciated it so much and it was such a wonderful thing for her to say to me. And I know she says it to like every young cartoonist, but it's, it's so important to, to think of your art as your baby and to, to care for it. And that means maybe not, (laughs) maybe not running rampage through your professional life. Maybe that means treating your art with respect, treating your baby with respect and treating the other people that are doing your job with respect. And I think that that's a lot of what it takes to be an artist is respect.
0: That's very well said. Thank you, Linda and Lucy for, no, I mean, <laughs> this is like Gina's looking at me, like speaking of forgetting names, like, no, I know I'm going somewhere. <laughs> no, Linda, very, yes. Anyway. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Linda via Lucy.
1: Yes. Um, so Lucy, we, we are wrapping up, but if people are like, by this uh, extreme professionalism of Lucy Nisley that she has spoken about on this podcast, uh, we have been induced to check out her her creative work as well. Um, where should they look to find you? What what uh, books should they check out? And where can you be added?
2: <laughs> well, you can at me at my name, which has a silent K at the beginning, so it's a little hard to spell. But uh, the easiest way to find me is go to stoppayingattention.com online, which will take you to all of uh, the things that I am online. (laughs) It will uh, let you see my comics, my published works, my Twitter page, my Instagram full of lots of cute baby pictures. Um, And uh, you can find me from there or you can also go to your local bookstore or library and ask for my books. Uh, I would start with Relish. Uh, It's uh, my earlier work that is about cooking. If you like to eat or cook, I highly recommend it.
1: Okay, awesome. Thank you so much. We really appreciate you coming and talking to us. Yeah, thank you very much. It was good to talk to you. My pleasure. Thank you too. This has been Graphic Novel TK. Thanks for listening. Uh, Join us next time for a discussion about the day-to-day life of being a comics creator with Carrie Peach. We're going to talk all about how you make a book from a practical standpoint. Spoiler alert,
0: it takes a very long time. Graphic Novel TK is co-produced by Gina Gagliano and Alison Wilgis, and is brought to you by The Beat. You can find our show notes along with other comics news and podcasts at comicsbeat.com. Our podcast graphics were created by Shivana Sofdeo. Our theme music is by Poddington Baird. You can follow us on Twitter at GraphicNovelTK or email us at GraphicNovelTK at gmail.com.